Father, uh, we thank you that knowing you, there is no greater thing. I, I ask that today you'd make that more of a reality in our lives, that there's nothing in comparison to the worth of your son. There's nothing in comparison to, uh, to the joy that we have when we uh, rejoice in your presence. Father, would you make that more of a reality for us today? Would you, Lord, I, I ask that for people, for those who are going through dry times, that perhaps say with the psalmist, why are you so downcast, O my soul, that today there would be the recognition that they will again praise you. And Lord, I pray that today, Lord, that our that my words would bring honor to you. I pray you'd give grace to the hearers today as well. In Jesus' name, amen. It's become almost a tradition in our home that, uh, that when our children are getting ready to, to leave the house to go to some event or to hang out with friends or to, uh, to go to a Super Bowl game or something, that as they're walking out the door, I'll, I'll say to them, uh, now have fun, uh, but not too much. Uh, in fact, they, my kids accuse me of, uh, of not wanting their funometer to go too high. So I wonder if we think of God in that way. I wonder if we think, uh, do you think of God as perhaps not limited in his joy, limited in his uh, ability to, to have, to give us joy? And do you think of him as perhaps wanting to, to limit our funometer in some way? Or, or do you see him as uh, you know, infinitely uh, full of joy himself? Um, how, do you, how do you rate, on a scale of 1 to 10, if you were to, to rate your own level of joy, where, where would that be? Um, would you be surprised to know that, that, that God, that, that Jesus... Uh, and John 17 prayed that we would have a full joy. I mean, not a, that we would have more joy than, than uh, that's, I think that's, that's our issue today, is that we enjoy him too little. And in the book of Philippians, the book of Philippians is called uh, the, the epistle of joy. More than, uh, at least 16 times in the book, he, he uses the word, he uses the word, uh, joy or rejoice or, or gladness in, in four short chapters, and it's, been, it's called the epistle of joy. And Paul not only demonstrates his own uh, joy in life in difficult circumstances, but he also, find it's extremely important to him that the Philippians have that same joy. Not that Paul just has it, but that he works together for the Philippians' joy. Uh, would you turn with me to, to Philippians 1? And let me just uh, mention the, the context of Philippians 1 as, as you're turning. And this is, Philippians 1, uh, Philippians is uh, Paul, Paul in, in Acts chapter 16 is traveling with Silas on the second missionary journey. They are, they're visiting churches in Galatia that, that Paul and Barnabas had planted on the first journey. And as they... Uh, pass through Galatia, that's where they meet Timothy. Timothy begins to travel with them. He's very young. And as they travel, uh, they try to travel south from Galatia into Asia, 
and then north to Bithynia. Uh, the Holy Spirit prevents them from both. And then they go west to Troas on the coast of the Aegean Sea. And then uh, Paul has a vision, this uh, vision of a man that is calling from Macedonia, urgently saying, come. And so Paul uh, and Silas sail the Aegean to the leading city of Macedonia, which was Philippi. It's a Roman colony, a very important city of the time. So when they first uh, reach Philippi, they, they meet uh, a woman named Lydia. Who, and the book of Acts tells us that God opened, the, the, the heart, the, opened her heart to respond to the gospel, and obviously to others within Philippi. And they respond to the gospel. And, but soon we, we hear that Paul and Silas are thrown into prison. In fact, it says that they are thrown into the inner courts, into the inner prison. And they, their, their feet are, are in stocks. And, and an amazing scene is that it says that uh, about midnight they're, they're, singing, they're singing hymns and praying. And all the other prisoners hear them. And, they, uh, and then God brings a great earthquake and opens the door, a great miracle. Uh, the jailer wakes up, thinks that everyone has escaped, and he, he starts to kill himself. And Paul, said, Paul says, no, don't kill yourself. And, and as a result, the jailer himself believes and is baptized. And then uh, the next day, they're, they're, uh, the leaders of Philippi are, are called and say, are to- told uh, Paul and Silas they could be released. And Paul, being a Roman citizen, says, wait, you need to come, and re- come to us personally before and, and release us yourself. So as they leave uh, Philippi on that first visit, we're, we're not told whether uh, how many times they they visited uh, Philippi again before writing this letter. But we do think that Paul likely did. Uh, we don't know for sure, but, but, uh, but Paul is now in prison again. And this time he's in, in a Roman prison and he's awaiting uh, a sentence before Nero. Uh, and this time he's not being miraculously delivered, at least not yet. He, Paul... Um, we're told in the book of Philippians itself a lot of things about, or several things about the, the relationship that Paul had with the Philippians. First, he, he had a great affection for them. I mean, there was a special bond between Paul and the Philippians. In fact, it says, this is an amazing statement that Paul says, God is my witness in, in 1 verse 8. God is my witness how I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. He's calling God as his own witness to that great affection that he had for them. And, and, uh, and he says in, in chapter 4, verse 1, that they are, he calls him his beloved and says that they're his joy and crown. There's something special about the relationship Paul has with the Philippians. And, uh, they were also his only financial supporters uh, in, uh, in several, several occasions. In, in chapter 4, Philippians, it says that Philippi were the, was the only church to share with him in this matter of giving. And then uh, third is special about that relationship is that uh, Epaphroditus, a, a member from the Philippian church itself, went from uh, Philippi to, to Rome to minister to Paul in his imprisonment. And it was a, uh, uh, he, he's called the messenger and minister to Paul's needs. Epaphroditus actually gets very sick 
uh, almost, and almost dies, but then he recovers. And, and it's at this point that Paul, out of concern for the Philippians, says, sends Epaphroditus back to, uh, to, to Philippi with, the, with this letter that we're reading today. Um, earlier in chapter 1, before we pick up, I'd like to pick, uh, begin reading in, in verse 18. Uh, but earlier in this chapter, he has spoken about people who have proclaimed the gospel uh, from some from good motives and some from bad motives. And even, even in light of those who had uh, been preaching him with bad motives, he, he says this, What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary for, on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw that I had and now hear that I still have. I'd like to look at uh, two main sections. Uh, in verses 19 to 26, uh, the motive for Paul's missional life. That is, what should, what should life look like on the inside? What was his motive? And then secondly, what's the manner? Given uh, in verses 27 to 30, given this inner motivation, how... How should this exhibit itself in outward visible behavior? Uh, as I said, Paul was both personally and personally joyful, and he placed a strong emphasis on the joy of others. And in verse 18 that we just read, he's personally rejoicing in, over Christ being preached with wrong motives. In fact, those motives were that they would cause harm to Paul. They, were, they wanted to hurt Paul. And even in that, Paul is able to rejoice. How? How could he rejoice when someone was specifically wanting to hurt him? And, and why? Why did he do that? Uh, he tells us in verses 19 and 20. Notice the, the preposition where he starts uh, with for. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Or, uh, you know, the first thing to note is it, it delivered from what? You know, Paul, you might first think he's, being, he's 
confident he's going to be delivered from prison. And yet, the end of verse, verse 20 makes it clear that that's not what he's thinking because he says by life or by death. But he's thinking about being delivered from his present circumstances. And how, what was the confidence that he had that he would be delivered from those present circumstances? What, it was based on two things. First, the Philippians' prayers. The prayers of the Philippian church. Paul knew that the prayers of the Philippian church would be effective. Perhaps he was thinking of Peter, thinking back of when Peter was delivered from, from prison uh, when the, the disciples had prayed for his release. Perhaps he was uh, thinking of what, what James, the brother of Jesus, had written when he said, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. He knew that prayer was effective and that it, and that it made a difference. I, I know that um, you know, we have uh, prayer times uh, every, every Sunday uh, before the service in which we pray for the service. And I have become more and more um, aware of the effectiveness of those prayers. That I, I want to encourage you, it, you know, we, we, we go periods where we don't see answered prayer. We become discouraged. But I want to encourage you that to keep knocking, keep seeking, keep asking, because it is effective. They are effective. And Paul knew that. I mean, he... His life was, he was so dependent on the prayers of the Philippians that that gave him confidence. It was another thing that he was confident in was, as it says, the help of the uh, Spirit of Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit. This has probably given me the most comfort, even as I prepared uh, for this message, is that as I think about the, the helper, Think of, you know, Jesus in John 16 said before he goes away, he would send the helper, the Holy Spirit, who would be with us. And as, I, as you think about the things that the helper does, I'd like you to just listen to these things as we're told in Scripture that he does for us. He comforts us in, our, in affliction, in, in, in any way, in anything that we're going through. He brings great comfort. He teaches us. It's not our mental abilities that are going to teach us things. The Holy Spirit promises to be our teacher. He convicts us. We need, we desperately need, and I'm so thankful that he, he, the Holy Spirit puts the light of conviction on, on areas of our lives. He reminds us. He brings to our remembrance things that Jesus said to us. He, uh, he strengthens us in our weakness when we feel like you know, there's that this is just beyond me. It's beyond my my ability. I, this is just unreasonable. He strengthens us. And this is really sweet. He intercedes with groaning too deep for words. He, uh, you know, when we don't even know how to pray, he's there. He's interceding. Uh, and we cannot forget Galatians 5, that he produces the fruit, the fruit of the Spirit. Think of the, the fruits of the Spirit that, uh, that we so lightly read over. That he, the, he produces love. He produces that joy, the joy that, that we're talking about a lot in this message. And he produces peace and, he, and patience. Patience with, in any circumstance. He's, he's the one doing that. 
He, he gives us kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. And there's, there's no law against any of those things. He, um, Paul was confident in his deliverance because he was greatly dependent on the prayers of the Philippian people and the help of the Holy Spirit. Um, he, he was not just confident that he would be delivered. But in verse 20, we see that he had no shame. He was, he was confident that he would not be ashamed. And, and I know that he has in mind here, remember the context, he's in a Roman prison and he's, he's going to be coming before Nero soon to, for sentencing. And he's thinking he's not going to be ashamed when he stands before Nero. Um, and, and I think about Peter when Peter said, Lord, I'm not going to deny you. I won't. And, he, and he was so confident. And then three times he denied Christ. And I wonder what gave Paul such confidence that, that he, he was not going to deny Christ in front of Nero. And I think it's this, that the, that the confidence that he had in verse 20 was because of the dependence that he had in verse 19. He, this was not... Um, a pride or presumption on his part. It was, it was a confident dependence. And he was thinking it was faith built on promises. Now, what promises might he have had in mind? It would, he might have been thinking of Jesus' words when he said uh, that when they bring you before uh, the synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't be anxious about how you'll defend yourself, what you'll say. For here, listen to this, the Holy Spirit will teach you. That in that very hour, what you'll say. Or maybe he was thinking of a verse that in, in Isaiah 49 that he himself quotes uh, twice in Romans when he said, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. I'm sure he was thinking of a myriad of promises. But the, the point is that Paul, with his great dependence, that great dependence resulted in, in a great confidence. And that great confidence is what resulted in a great joy. It, I, I think verses 19 and 20 are almost like uh, our Romans 8.28. He, he's saying, listen, I know that all of these things that are happening to me in prison are going to turn out, are going to work together for good. Because I know I'm called according to his purpose. And I know I love God and I'm called according to his purpose. He goes on in, in verse 21, and verse 21 is, should, should make us stop in our tracks. It's a, uh, you know, this is, Paul in one short verse is giving us his view of life and death. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, very simply, Paul is saying, Christ is everything to me. Everything. There's nothing that... <laughs> His whole life was wrapped up in Christ. And uh, to die would just mean getting more of Christ. So, of course, that's going to be gain. It's not Christ plus something else, but it was Christ only. You know, as, as I consider this verse, I'd like us to... What, what do you think your life verse would look like? I mean, if, I, if we were to say, for me to live is blank... And to die is blank. What would you fill in for those blanks? I know perhaps for some of us it'd be for me to live is to be rich. 
And in that case, to die would be loss. Or for me to live would be to be popular. And again, to die would then be loss. Or for me to, to live would be be successful at work. Again, the result of dying would be loss. And then, you know, for me to live is, would be to have fun, to enjoy life, have a great vacation. To die again would be lost. You know, the only thing that we can put in that first blank it is Christ that will result in the second blank of being gained. I, I, I think if Paul were to live today, he would not be a tent maker. I think he would be an accountant. Uh, I, I think he... His words in, in, uh, in chapter 3, in fact, the song that we sang, Knowing God, was based, based on this passage from Philippians 3, where he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Notice the words loss and gain. I mean, Paul's an accountant here. He's got on his, um, on his gain or his credit column, he's got Christ. And on his, his uh, debit or, or loss column, he's got everything else. And there's no comparison. I mean, think of another analogy where you've got to wait a scale where Christ is on one side of the scale and everything else that the world would have to offer is on the other. And there's no comparison. I mean, Paul is, Paul is no dummy. He, 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 he sees it, the, the, the worth of Christ and is simply saying it's, it's, there's no comparison to it. Now, let me caution and say this doesn't mean that there's no cost. I mean, there is a cost. We're told to count the cost. But the more that we look at the, at the worth of Christ, the more we'll see that there's no comparison. He goes on in, uh, in verses 22 to 26, and, and Paul has a, a mental wrestling match here. Uh, let me just say in verse 22, I know uh, could perhaps be confusing to some even thinking Paul was contemplating suicide. He says, yet, which shall I choose? I cannot tell. And he's trying to choose between life and death. And the word choose uh, can also mean prefer. Um, so he's, he's saying, he's simply saying that, not that he has the, the choice. He knows God is sovereign. But he's saying, if I, I'm just trying to see what would I prefer. And, he, and he's not sure. He's wrestling through that in his own mind. In verse 23, he says he's hard-pressed between the two, two and his desires to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. And I like that the NAS says very much better because it's a double superlative. And it's like Paul, he's not saying it's, you know, it's better or it's better, very better. It's very much better. It's, it's like Paul is trying to express this superlative that he, he can't put enough in the comparison between being with Christ in heaven, uh, enjoying unhindered fellowship, no longer seeing him like in a glass dimly, but seeing him face to face. He's saying there's no comparison between that and, 
and walking and being here on earth. But then he uh, goes on in, in 24 to 26, and Paul's mental wrestling match ends, and he says, uh, notice how it ends. Paul realizes that staying is better uh, because, because of three things. That they would, the Philippians would progress in their faith, that their, the joy of their faith would increase, and third, that the Philippians would begin to transfer their focus from Paul to Christ. Now, I think all these three things are really wrapped together. And I think, you know, Paul is saying that, that as they grow or progress in their faith and as their joy in Christ increases and they see more of his worth, then it's going to naturally, it will just be natural for them to transfer their affections more and more from Paul to Christ. Uh, I like uh, the Philippian, Philippians 1.6 in the NAS reads that, this way it says so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again he wanted that transfer of affections to go to move from him to Christ C.S. Lewis uh, in an article that he wrote called meditation in a tool shed (laughs) said uh, it's it's a very interesting article in which he's he's uh, he's in a tool shed that's very dark and, and the only thing that he can see in this tool shed, there's a crack in the door and a ray of sun is, is shining through. And all, he can see this, this beam of light, particles of dust floating in the light. And he, uh, he moves toward the light. He can see nothing else. As he gets closer to the light, he can see that it's coming through the crack in the door. He can see a little bit of the source of it. And as he stands in, all the way in front of the light, and the light is directly in his eyes, the tool shed disappears. And all he can see is the brilliance of the sun. And, and Lewis uh, uses this as an example of showing us the, the difference between looking at something and looking along with something. In, in other words, looking at the beam revealed the effect of the beam. He could see the light that the beam caused in the, t- in the tool shed, in the dark tool shed. But looking, moving himself to look at the beam, he saw the source of the beam, and he saw the sun itself. And I think that's what Paul is saying to the Philippians here, is that, is that he wanted them to move toward, he wanted them to see what the source of his joy was by looking at Christ. And I think today, you know, if, if we are to read this passage and we see a verse for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, and we, we go away and we say, wow, Paul is, I, I can think of, of two ways we could respond. We could say, wow, Paul is up here. That's a high bar to reach. But my life is, I, I, you know, he, he's an apostle. He saw Christ. I'm going to set my bar a little lower. Or, may, or perhaps we're, we're we accept the challenge to imitate him as, as he calls us to do. And, and we do so, and we are quickly discouraged. And, and so we're maybe even resulting in guilt. But, I th- but Paul is calling us to, to not look at him as so unattainable. I think that's what he wanted the Philippians, to not see has, him as something unattainable. But, the, but 
Ultimately, Paul's motivation was simple. It was the worth of Christ. It was like he, he had found this treasure in a field and all, over the joy that he had, it propelled him. And I think as we, as we move toward that ray, as we try to look along with Paul rather than look at Paul, that we see more of his life does become more understandable and, and attainable and, um, and, we, and we begin to see the worth of Christ more. And we're fueled by that joy. Paul moves on to, um, to the manner of the missional life in verses 27 to 30. He, he moves from talking about his view of life and death to now uh, focusing on his desire for the Philippians and what that outward behavior would look like. And he, he talks about the manner of life that they should live. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The phrase, uh, to let your life be worthy, would have been really familiar to the Philippians. Uh, they were, remember, uh, Philippi was a Roman colony. And this, this phrase, uh, so, so as a Roman colony, they, they wanted to live as, as citizens of, of, Rome, of a little Rome. And this phrase literally means to live as citizens or to conduct oneself according to the laws and customs of the state. And so Paul is saying to the Philippians, they aren't to, to live their lives as citizens of a little Rome, but they're to live their lives as citizens of heaven. As he says in, in chapter 3, that your citizenship is in heaven. Rome expected its citizens to, to honor the emperor in the Roman state, to speak well of it, to live life in light of their identity as Roman citizens. And so Paul is saying as, as citizens of heaven, he's telling the Philippian church to honor Christ, speak well of him, and live life in light of their identity as, as Christians. And he goes on then to give four externally visible things they should be doing, and I'll just say them in, in four brief words here, uh, and then I'll speak to each of them. Stand, strive, strong, or be strong, and suffer. And stand, strive, be strong, and then suffer. In, uh, in verse 27, he says, standing firm in one spirit. And this, the, the, uh, the meaning to, to the Philippians would have been like a soldier standing firm at his post and not giving one inch of ground as, as, as the Roman military would have done. So for the Philippians, it meant not giving way to cultural pressures that they had to go and uh, adhere to the Roman gods and goddesses. It meant uh, not being pressured by those. And as citizens, as, uh, for us, it means that something very similar. It means not giving way to our cultural pressures to, to the gods of our day that are, that are money, success, popularity, comfort, Don't, that we shouldn't give even an inch to those. And in our, in our conversations with one another, in our, in our thinking, in our planning, in our wants and dreams, that we're to, to stand firm. And note the, the, the emphasis on unity in one spirit. This is not something that we that we're doing solo, but we need to encourage one another to stand firm and not compromise. He goes on in verse, in verse 27 to uh, say, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And 
uh, striving, I know, sounds like work and it's not an immediately uh, encouraging you know, thing we want to, to, to grapple with or to embrace. But let me encourage you again with, uh, that this is a strive with joy, not duty. And uh, another thing that C.S. Lewis said is this, is that a perfect man would never act from a sense of duty. He, the, this perfect man, would, would always want the right thing more than the wrong one. Duty is only a substitute for love of God and other people, like a crutch, which is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need the crutch at times, but of course it's idiotic to use the crutch when our own legs, our own loves, taste, habits can do the journey on their own. You know, we are just encourage you in this striving to strive to strive with joy. Note again, he, he says, with one mind, the unity, and he says, strive side by side. And that word side, strive side by side is actually a single Greek word that is uh, soon athleo, which the word athleo, we get our word athlete from. And soon is just together or are side by side or, or, or co. So it's like he's saying, be co-athletes. We're to be, we're on the same team, on the same uh, athletic team. And we're, it's, it's, you know, for example, we're, we're a bicyclist in, in the Tour de France. And we're, how they stay in one pack, riding close to one another. And, and they're always switching positions drafting off each other so that they can give each other relief. And, and that's the picture of striving together that Paul paints here. But note the, the object of what they're striving for. It says striving together for what? For the faith of the gospel. And this is critical. I mean, I think if we miss this, you know, if we aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. We, we, need to, to be criti- we need to honestly ask ourselves, both individually and corporately, what is... What are the things that we're striving for? What are our efforts directed toward? I think we need much grace here to, to not separate the sacred and secular. There's not, there's not two lives for us here. There, there's one sacred life. I, consider, remember uh, Aquila and Priscilla. They were husband and wife. Paul met them uh, in Corinth, they had been expelled from Rome because of, uh, they were Jews by Nero. And they were, they were working, Paul met them because they were, they were both tent makers. Uh, Acts says that uh, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. So they, they uh, come to Christ. And as a result, they, they end up traveling with Paul to Ephesus. And Paul leaves them in Ephesus and they work uh, they're ministering to the church at Ephesus. And, and then later, Apollos. You know, remember Apollos? He's the, the great preacher of the time, great orator. And, and he comes to Ephesus, and, but he doesn't know Christ. And he's speaking, and who is it but Aquila and Priscilla that go and, and take him aside and explain to him the things of God more accurately, the things of Christ. Apollos is then used greatly by God. Uh, we're, we're told also that, that uh, Aquila and Priscilla had churches in their home, one, once in Ephesus and once in Rome. We're told that, uh, that, that, that Paul, even, Paul calls Aquila and Priscilla his fellow workers, and he says that they, they, 
risked their lives to save his life, something that many people were, were greatly joyful about. Here, I, I get the point is this, that Aquila and Priscilla, Paul as well, and the Philippians, they, were all, they all had jobs. They were working in these jobs, but they didn't view those jobs as an end in themselves. They were, they, were, they were a tool to be used. And, I, and I, there was no se- separate, secular, sacred and secular life for them. Whether it, was, whether it be for us a job, a school, or working in the home, all of it should be done for the faith of the gospel, pointed toward that. And we need to honestly ask ourselves, how, Lord, give us grace to apply that to every, every aspect of our lives. Uh, we're to, he says, stand, strive, and then third, to be strong. Or the word strong is not actually here, but in, in, he, he says, in, and to not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a, a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. And that's, and that's from God. Who are the opponents? We're not told. We do know they oppose the gospel. Uh, why, why does Paul tell them to not be frightened or alarmed by these people? He tell, it's because by doing that, it was a clear sign to them. It was a, a testimony to them. In fact, the word clear sign is a really strong word. It means proof. It was by them not being frightened, it was proof and evidence that they were giving uh, to, to, those, to the unbelievers of the truth of the gospel. So how does it apply to us? When you speak the gospel, expect some form of opposition, don't, and don't be alarmed by it. I mean, it may come in different forms. It may be something that is exclusionary, or it may be more directed, maybe more uh, vocal toward you. But, but expect it and don't be alarmed by it. And don't have that, don't let that cause you to, to change the message, to apologize for it. To, but do it with gentleness and reverence. You know, we're told, and, and as we do that with gentleness and reverence, as we speak in this way, as we respond to people who perhaps will say, could say hurtful things to us. It's evidence to them. It it is proving to them the truth of the gospel. We're to stand, strive, to be strong, and and last to suffer. In 29 and 30, he says, it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now here I still have. Just two, two things. He says that faith is a gift. And suffering is a gift. Suffering is just as much a gift as faith is. I think what type of suffering, he's clearly talking about suffering as a Christian. I think suffering as a Christian you know, it is rare for us today in, in the U.S. I think they're di- maybe not as rare as we think. I think uh, there are passages that talk about suffering as, uh, uh, as being uh, as, exclu- as people one part of suffering as a Christian would be that you're being excluded. I think that happens some. But I think it's more rare today than it should be. And I think because we're, we're hesitant to speak, 
So that's a great motivator. Uh, if we speak the gospel more, suffering will increase. Thanks. <laughs> uh, why, why would you want that? Why would anyone want that? I think there are two reasons. Earthly worthiness and heavenly rewards. We, uh, we're told in Acts that when they, they left the presence of the, the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffer, to suffer dishonor for his name. I mean, if you're chosen to suffer for his name, for something that is infinitely valuable, I think this really goes back to us seeing the true value of him. I mean, it, as we, it all goes back there, right? As we see the value of it, we're going to embrace that suffering with joy. It's going to be an honor. The other reason to welcome suffering as a gift is, is uh, heavenly rewards. And I know David has spoken about this in Sunday school uh, this morning and previously as well. Luke six twenty two and 23 says, Blessed are you when people hate you. And here's the verse I was ref- part I was referring to earlier. When they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. We're not told what the reward is, but we know it's great. And, and Paul, as the accountant, would be the first to stand up and say, it's not worth comparing to the glory that's to be revealed to us. So as we stand, as we see the worth of the gospel and our joy increases in that worth and, our, and it causes us to stand firm and to, to strive side by side and to not be, in, not be frightened or, or surprised at, at any loss or, um, and to embrace suffering joyfully if we're counted worthy. And let, me, let me close with three uh, brief applications. And they revolve around what we often revolve around in this, in this church, loving God's glory, loving God's people, and loving God's world. On the, on the first, loving God's glory, to rejoice in the Lord. Primarily, I think that's, that's through His Word. Uh, Tom read uh, a quote from George Mueller a few weeks ago, but I, this bears repeating. George Mueller was a... Uh, founded orphanages in England in the 1800s. He, he was a great man of prayer. Toward the end of his life, uh, he writes this. According to my judgment, the most important point to be attended to is this. Above all things, to see to it that your souls are happy in the Lord. Other things may press upon you. The Lord's work may even have urgent claims upon your attention. But I deliberately repeat, it is of supreme and paramount importance that you should Seek above all things to have your souls truly happy in God himself. Day by day, seek to make this the most important business of your life. How can we increase our joy in the Lord? I think it's make uh, three suggestions here. Meditate on, the, on your inheritance as citizens that we talk as citizens of heaven. And Ephesians 1 is a good place to go. Pray, realize that, that joy is a gift from God. Pray for it and pray along with David like he did. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. And then third, I'd say, I, I read books that are rich with this teaching. And I, I would 
you know, there are, there are many. I'd recommend two that uh, have been meaningful to me recently, and that's uh, John Piper's uh, When I Don't Desire God. And second is The Glory of Christ by John Owen. I read the abridged version. It's much easier. Let me encourage you as you read these, uh, stop and, and, and look up the verses. It makes a world of difference. I mean, second, for loving God's people, encourage one another in the fight for joy. Uh, Paul does that himself in the book of Philippians, to, the, to Philippians in, th- in chapter 3, verse 1, when he says, Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble for me and it's a safeguard for you. So I get this picture when we encourage one another to rejoice in the Lord. It's like we're putting up guardrails along each other's life, the road of our lives, and, and we're keeping each other from, steer, from steering off the road. Share with each other your struggles, not just you know, be transparent and don't put up fronts. Um, I, start meeting either in a care group or a, or a mentor group. And, it, and if, you, if you're interested in, in a group, please talk to your elder. There, will, there are groups. Third, loving God's world. Uh, speak the gospel. Speak to unbelievers. This is not just for the select few, right? It's not just for pastors and elders. It's the responsibility of all believers. Paul says, uh, when he's speaking to the Philippians, he said, most of the, the brothers, and he's speaking to the entire church, most of the brothers have much more, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So he's, he presumes, he assumes that there is going to be that speaking. But we've got to avoid two extremes, right? One extreme is life without words. And the other is words without life. Um, the danger of life without words is someone saying, oh, he's a really nice guy, but they never give any thought to Christ. The danger of words without life is he's a hypocrite and brings dishonor on the name of Christ. We need both life and words. I encourage you to write down a few names, put them in your Bible, pray for them, consider asking them to, to, to meet with you to just to read a gospel of John or Mark and just discuss it. As I said at the beginning, as I say to my children, have fun, but not too much. Um, I think our Father says to us, have infinite fun, joy in me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the, for the joy that you give us in your, in your presence, there's fullness of joy. Your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to fight for joy and that joy would propel us to, to be on mission, to, be, to apply this to every area of our life. Lord, would you, by your grace, allow us to, to be hearers of your word who apply it and, and with joy walk with you more closely. In Jesus' name.